Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. That famous refrain of Jeremiah 17, verse number 7. The blessedness and, of course, all the wonderful matters that attach to trusting in the Lord and allowing one's life to be governed and directed solely by Him is a blessing that, of course, those in the world cannot appreciate at this point. But how thankful it is that as Christians we not only can appreciate that, but rest fully on the comfort and the marvelous wonder found in the Word of God. As you might have noted, the title of the lesson tonight touches the gentleman who is mentioned but very rarely in the sacred scriptures, that man whose name is Onesiphorus. And over the next few moments tonight, might I invite you to consider with me the friendship in, described by the, the Apostle Paul in that letter that was just read a moment ago. I suspect as we at least give thought to this matter of friendship and specifically that of Onesiphorus, maybe it would be fair to introduce what we have to say by way of some of the concepts on this slide. Friendship is a rather special matter, isn't it? So much so that often, especially those that are impressionable and those that are rather young, are so motivated by and so moved by the desire for friendship that often they're willing to make poor decisions. A friend will insist upon doing something. Take this cigarette. Drink this beer have some kind of sexual activity, else you're not my friend. And so immediately there is an element of pressure placed upon this young person. Maybe even you and I who are older can face at least something in a parallel fashion. And all the while under the banner of friendship, under the heading, under the desire, under the prompting promotion of friendship. It is interesting in light of all of that that you and I can be so easily influenced by our friendship with others. And certainly I think we would hope that as Christians, others might be improved by their friendship with us. I would invite you tonight to think with me about the friendship described of Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy 1. That friendship, I would hope, would perhaps motivate you and me to be better friends. But not only that, so much we can learn about Paul's friendship with this gentleman is herein stated. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, friendship can often swing in two very dramatically different directions. There are times when that friendship can be so uplifting, so encouraging, so noteworthy. But there are times it can border on devastating. It can border on catastrophic. I would hope tonight that as we study this friendship, we might be moved to give thought to a few of these special characteristics of the friendship found here. This slide is one that moves us to at least a friendship listed on the part of the Apostle Paul. Isn't it true that across the biblical stage there walks many characters? Some of them, in fact, are often mentioned and they occupy a foremost consideration in our thinking. Abraham, Joseph, no doubt Jesus Himself, as well as a number of others. But on the other hand, there are occasions in which there are individuals that might well be called minor characters. They only appear once or twice in the Bible, but yet often their appearance being prompted by the Holy Spirit's preservation of that fact helps us see that God intended us to learn something from it. Look at some of the friends that we might well appreciate from the writings of Paul and see if you aren't led to that same conclusion with me. At the very top of that list, I put Timothy. 
Timothy, we first encounter in second in the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14, on that missionary journey, and then his name expressly mentioned there in chapter 16. We find a young man so noble and so willing by his knowledge of the Scriptures to give his life over to a defense of the work of God. This gentleman, Timothy, of course, became a companion on that second missionary journey. Paul wrote two books to him in the New Testament, and what a noteworthy figure he was in the setting forth of the gospel in the first century. On several occasions, Paul referred to him as my beloved son in the faith. Paul thought a great deal of Timothy, didn't he? He sought to encourage him in his work. He sought to lead him and instruct him and guide him in the way of God. And I think any of us as older men certainly would wish to train or at least help our youngsters grow up also, much like Paul assisted Timothy. Certainly older women are admonished in Titus 2 verse 4 to train the younger women so that they can learn from your experience and learn, of course, from the wisdom you have gleaned over years of faithful service. Not only Timothy, you'll notice also on that list is Silas a companion to Paul, also on the second missionary journey. Here's another gentleman mentioned a few times in the sacred scriptures. We do notice that the first and second Thessalonian letters were in fact such that his name is mentioned at the very beginning of the book. Silas was also apparently a gentleman of great strength and also a great encouragement. Beyond Silas, you'll notice Barnabas is next mentioned. Barnabas is another one who accompanied Paul on the journeys. This time it was the first journey. And isn't it amazing to appreciate that the word Barnabas literally means son of encouragement. Barnabas was known as one that encouraged others, helping them on their way to appreciate a brightness and an understanding that the blessing of God was rich and profound indeed. Beyond all of them, there's Onesimus. And you and I perhaps especially smile when we consider Onesimus. Here was a slave, one who may have been considered in his walk of life as very depressed and very much on the backside of what would be desirable. And yet, by some sort, he came into contact with Paul. Paul tended to the greatest need that man had by teaching him the gospel and helping him be converted to the gospel, as detailed in the book of Philemon. We notice, though, that Paul was so serious about the nature of not being guilty of deception that he, in fact, sent Onesimus back to his master, that gentleman named Philemon. Isn't it amazing what a special friend Onesimus was? In that very book, Paul even admitted that Onesimus could have been useful to me, but yet it would be far better and far more proper to send him back. Those friendships might be extended by looking at Aquila and Priscilla. When we studied the Roman letter on Wednesday evenings not too many months ago, we in fact laid some emphasis on that statement in Romans 16 verses 3 and 4 in which it was so notably mentioned, These laid down their life, their neck, for me. Many of us, I think, as we gave thought to that study, wondered what is it exactly that these two had done? How is it that they had laid their life on the line, their very neck, as it were, for the preservation of Paul? And yet we know something must have happened. What dear friends they were to Paul. Willing to give their lives for him, willing to encourage and support him even when things looked dark and bleak, 
what special individuals they were. Beyond those two, there's Amplius. But one time, as far as I know, mentioned in the New Testament, and yet how special touching that statement is. A brother beloved in the Lord. That's all Paul had to say. I wonder if our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ can say that about me and you. Brother beloved in the Lord, beloved sister in the Lord, would such a statement be characteristic of the way in which you and I conduct ourselves relative to them? Does such a statement do well to help see the need for that kind of Christian association? Beyond Amplius, isn't it true that one could mention Titus? When we think of Titus, I'm sure there's nearly a tear that comes to our eye. You might recall that as Paul had written that first letter to the, to the Corinthians and had such serious misgivings about the way that that letter would be received, would these people take that letter, learn from it, and repent of their errors, or would they be driven further from the truth? Would they be defensive, arrogant, and upset? Paul wondered. In fact, I'm sure he spent many a sleepless night until Titus came with the news. Can you imagine the brightness that filled the face and life of Paul when Titus came and shared with him the good news? They've received the message well. They've repented of their error and they have begun to walk faithfully in the Lord. No wonder in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul expressly mentioned, I found no rest until I found Titus, my brother. Paul couldn't wait to hear what Titus had to say. That does highlight the special opportunity that's ours even to come together with those of like precious faith as we are tonight. When Peter made reference to that fact in 2 Peter 1 verse 1, isn't it still a very special appreciation to come together when the cares and the disturbances of the world can at least be put at bay for an hour or so and we're able for a while to lift our eyes above the mundane matter of the horizon before us and see truly the blessed nature of the eternal Word of God before us and to understand that in that we find the hope that shall lead us through this life and of course will lead us into the realms of eternal glory. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8 verse 18. As you can see, only three more on this page. There's Tychicus, mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. A very faithful brother who shared the blessed news of what was happening with Paul with the Ephesian individuals. By Paul's language, it would appear he thought very highly of Tychicus. You'll also notice there's Luke. There's Luke. There's a statement made about Luke that maybe you and I don't reflect on as often as we might. We know that he is the beloved physician, and we know that he was a companion of Paul on the missionary journeys, and we know that he was an individual that had much to say about the prompting of the books of the New Testament. After all, he wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. But there's a little statement, it's just one sentence, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. Paul at this point had reached nearly the end of his way, it would seem. As far as we know, he wasn't released from this last imprisonment. As far as we know, his life was taken from him eventually as the Roman Caesar had given that order. You'll notice in that same statement, he had affirmed Demas is not with me anymore. He's loved this present world. Here was one whom Paul may have considered a dear friend who has now rejected him. 
But there is this little statement about Luke. Only Luke is with me. Everyone else was either busy or they had rejected the apostle. Only Luke is with me. What comforting words Luke must have shared in those final days of the life of Paul. What comforting appreciations must he have shared one with the other. And I wonder how strong prayer was between those two in those final days. Only Luke is with me. Today, it's noteworthy to give thought about Luke being with Paul. And isn't it true that sometimes you and I have the precious privilege of being with someone as they near the end of their journey in the flesh? It often can be such touching words that we can share with them then. And often such great things they can share with us. The last one on that slide, Epaphras. Colossians 1.7 mentions him as an individual, again, centrally featured in light of that Colossian letter. I say all those to mention one more. At the top of this slide, you'll notice there's John Mark. John Mark was one who had a difference with Paul, you might recall. In fact, they didn't see eye to eye, at least in one sense, because John Mark had abandoned the first journey. He had gone with them for a while, but when they reached the land, he actually turned back. Paul thus was unwilling to take John Mark on the second journey. There was thus a bit of a difference of appreciation between these two, but thankfully that did not arrest the work of God. Paul chose Silas and went one way. John Mark labored with Barnabas and went somewhere else. They both carried out the work of God. It might be tempting to think then that Paul maintained a lifelong grudge against John Mark, but that isn't so. You'll notice here in 2 Timothy 4.11, this same Mark is mentioned one more time, and here Paul said he's profitable for the ministry. Those differences, you see, they didn't allow to remain so to become seen. That's one of the marks of true friendship, isn't it? We're not to allow grudges. We're not to allow personal differences of opinion to cause us to not work in the kingdom of God, and we're not to allow those things to cause us to be separated from God and to think more of a friend than we do our Father in heaven. Those kind of statements perhaps would lead us to these other comments as well. All of those friendships have been on the positive side. What about these that might not have been so positive? In fact, these that apparently were very much on the side of being questionable. Paul makes mention of these individuals. 2 Timothy 1.15, he makes mention of Phygelus and Hermogenes. Two gentlemen who apparently were well known to the apostle, not only acquainted with them, but in fact very much knowledgeable of their state. And yet, Paul comments very forcefully, comments very thoroughly, that these have been rejected. Look at the actual language. He says, This knowest thou, that they all which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul makes note that in Asia, he of course had preached and proclaimed the word of the Lord, and many had been excited and eager to proceed to encourage him. It would seem that these had at one time, but he now says they have turned away from me. I'm sure that bothered Paul. I'm sure it troubled him greatly to see these who once had been supporters of the truth and no longer were. 
Paul's friendship with them was so hopeful that they would come to their senses. You'll also notice there's mention of Demas. There in the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, he also has loved this present world and had forsaken Paul. I might use all of that to lead us to note the bottom of that slide. These friendships that we have commented on so far tonight, they do in fact span a rather wide range, don't they? Some friendships are loyal. They're deep-seated, they're rooted very strongly, and they are founded upon something that is very, very rich and very profound. But on the other hand, there seem to be friendships that really end in desertion. What prompts that desertion can be many things. On the other hand, there are friendships known for their genuineness, and maybe you've been blessed with a number of genuine friends in life, those who would be there no matter what, those who truly have your best interest at heart, those who truly have a desire not to simply do what's in their best interest, but truly what's in your best interest. Those kind of friends are rare, aren't they? They're special, you love them, and we are so thankful to God for them. On the other side, though, there are friends that are fake. They pull the wool over our eyes for a while. And then when the opportune time comes to beseech for themselves something better than what they think they presently have, we are expendable. And we are those who can be cast aside like an old dirty rag. That's sad, isn't it? Thankfully, Paul seemingly had far more friends, at least that he lists by name, in the first categories. But then finally, there are those friends that are genuinely good as opposed to those that seemingly are sinister. Those kinds of friendships do bring us to Onesiphorus. As he's mentioned here in 2 Timothy 1, I would invite you to look with me yet again at the nature of this passage. And may we at least take a few moments and be reminded about this gentleman, the kind of friend that he was to Paul, and perhaps use it to help us be a better friend as well. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day, and in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus. Thou knowest very well." Immediately, Paul notes in verse 16 his plea, his desire that God would give mercy, extend mercy to this household of Onesiphorus. We do not know how old a gentleman Onesiphorus was, the Scriptures do not say. We, in fact, do not know his station in life either. We know very, very little about him. But what we read is enough to impress upon us the nature of this man, the character that he had used to guide his own life. Paul here pleaded, in fact, it was his desire that God would extend to him a very powerful element in mercy. Perhaps beyond that, you'll notice he explains his reasoning for such promptings like this. He oft refreshed me. Verse number 16, he oft refreshed me. Immediately we can see in that Paul indeed was a human, wasn't he? That word refresh means to revive. It literally means to refresh. 
Were there times that the inspired apostle became a bit down? Were there times he became a bit dejected? Were there times that he was perhaps depressed? I'm sure in verses like Romans 10 verse 16 when he says, But they've not all obeyed the gospel. Though he preached it with all the passion within him, he had preached the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. He himself had said, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.16. He had even been able to admit to those in Rome, in Romans 1, verses 14 to 16, I'm debtor to preach it. I'm ready to preach it. I'm not ashamed to preach it. And all the while, there were still those who would not obey it. There were those who would turn their back upon it. There were those, in fact, who were ready to pick up rocks and kill him because they didn't like what he had to say. I'm sure Paul at times was a bit depressed, at least when he saw how so many were not willing to be subservient to the truth. It Could it be that Onesiphorus in a time like that cheered Paul up, encouraged him on the way of truth and faithfulness? Cannot you and I be thankful for a friend that does the same? Someone who sees that our frown has replaced what once was a smile. Someone who sees that shoulders are slumped when once there was such an excitement and fervor. Brother, don't you give up. You remain faithful and steadfast. This too shall pass. Or that kind sister who in such a smiling and marvelous fashion is able to help us over the rocky parts now to the smooth way that's beyond. That's what a friend can do. That's what Onesiphorus did. Perhaps you and I are called on to do the same. As we love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and maybe that's our own physical family members, and we become aware that things in life have become difficult challenging, almost to the point they appear overwhelming, that's when you and I can be there with a faithful word of support, a kind word of encouragement, and a steadfast word of love. All of that can make the whole difference, can't it, between what could otherwise be a giving up versus a successful emergence into victory. But thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. The victory then that we see in a passage like that one perhaps prompts us to notice what else is said about Onesiphorus. Not only is it said that he oft refreshed me, that alone would be noteworthy, but it says, and was not ashamed of my chain. Paul, you see, was bound a number of times. He found himself cast into a prison and the prisons in that day, very much different than today, were not pleasant places to be. Sometimes today, you and I seemingly are aware of the fact that prison life isn't all that bad. Plenty of food, nice warm bed and place to stay, but it wasn't so in first century Rome. Prisoners were shackled in very uncomfortable positions, often in a dark, damp dungeon, and that's where you stayed. Isn't it amazing in a place like that, Paul... We find in Silas in Acts 16 saying praises to God and an earthquake happened. The shackles were fell off, the prison doors were opened and the jailer was ready to take his own life because he felt sure they had escaped. Paul, it says, sprang in and it says we're all here. Isn't it interesting in light of ideas and concepts like that one? We find here that Onesiphorus was not ashamed of Paul's chain. 
It may be that there were many who didn't visit Paul much while he was in prison. After all, that place is perhaps unhealthy. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. And not only that, those there, I don't really want to company with them. And maybe the authorities will think that I am on Paul's side and maybe they'll arrest me too. Onesiphorus didn't let that stop him. He visited this man, Paul, whom he loved and cherished in the work of the Lord. And in so doing, it says, he was not ashamed of my chain. That speaks volumes about the attributes and the attitudes of Onesiphorus, doesn't it? As you can see in verse number 17, Paul continues to identify and explain that point. He says, But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. I'd invite you to think about some of what apparently is in that verse. Although it's brief and although it seems so short, it says when he was in Rome... We notice apparently that Onesiphorus was not native to Rome, but he had visited the city, and while he was there, it says, he sought me. But that isn't all he says. He says he sought me very diligently. I wonder what you and I might have done. Would we have picked up the phone if there had been such a thing? And if we were unable to find him, well, I tried, so I'll go on my way. Or maybe we would have pulled out the phone book and tried to make one hurried attempt and upon not finding him, we would have sufficed our conscience and went on our way. Onesiphorus, he says, sought me diligently. Maybe it took a week. Maybe it took a month to find Paul. Maybe it took six months. It doesn't say. But apparently in that day, one would think that long before there were listings as easily accessible as there now is on the Internet... And long before there was localized bureaus that would provide that kind of information, I suspect that Onesiphorus had to go around through the city, person by person, location by location, looking for Paul. He did not give up until he found him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that marvelous to think about that kind of friendship? And you'll notice he says, He sought me out very diligently and found me. Onesiphorus didn't give up at all. I wonder what kind of friend you and I would have been. What kind of friend are we today? Are we one who doesn't so easily give up when our way, the way that we pursue is correct? Are we ready to encourage that even though they may not like to hear it all the time? Are we happy to encourage and edify in all those ways without giving up as Onesiphorus did? When it comes to our own family members and those whom we're the closest to, is our fervor and our passion even more hotly considered and for those individuals? It does make one think, doesn't it? What kind of friend am I? Would my friends be able to describe me in any way even close to Onesiphorus? And would your friends be able to describe you in any way like that? It's a sobering matter of reflection, isn't it? The best friend that you and I can consider, of course, as we detail the nature of the Bible, certainly there are the other individuals listed as friendships. We could discuss Jonathan and David from the days of the Old Testament, but we could also appreciate that those friendships maybe lead us to a last element in the lesson tonight. 
This last element seems to suggest this. What was it that was the central foundation for this strong friendship between Onesiphorus and Paul? It wasn't the fact that they were parts of the same ball team. It wasn't the fact that they were parts of the same Lions club. There isn't anything wrong with any of those things, of course. But their friendship was so hotly founded upon, of course, their basic understanding of the truth of God and their dedication to it. You and I should then have a high regard and a deep love for those of faith like we. Is it any wonder that then the New Testament writers speak about brotherly love? Love of the brethren is really what that phrase means. And aren't we commanded in 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 5, that among those things we add to our lives, one of them is brotherly love. We get excited about the thought of seeing our brethren. We seemingly get excited about the thought of the successes in their life. After all, we rejoice with those that rejoice. Didn't Paul say that in Romans 12, verse 15? By the same token, we weep with those that weep. When their heart is broken, so is mine. And when their heart is suffering, so too does mine. When we see that sympathetic tear shed for those of like precious faith, it does help to set before us the strong nature of the church. Isn't it true that the God of heaven knew well that our sojourn through this life was difficult at best? Because our enemy is so strong, doesn't he walk about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? 1 Peter 5, 8. And isn't it true that He is the God of this world with all the power and fervor of it behind Him? In the language of Matthew 4, verses 1 to 6. It is in that regard, though, we have a family of mutual encouragement, a family of mutual support and edification, so much so the church is commanded along that line, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 10 and 11. We are commanded to edify one another, to build one another up, to help one another on the journey toward eternal salvation. That's one of the reasons why our attendance at the services is so powerful and so meaningful. For one thing, when I'm absent the services, well, surely it reflects badly upon me because I've chosen to do something else that apparently in my mind is more important than assembling with the saints. But the other thing about it is, by my failure to come... I am, in fact, doing a very great disservice to you. I could be here to encourage you in song, to encourage you in prayer, to encourage you by my presence and my givenness to the Word, but yet by my failure to be here, I'm failing on all those points. Perhaps that thought reminds us of that text in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Though housed in the words of the days of the long past... Jeremiah, by God, was asked to share this with the children of Israel. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You can easily see, it's not hard to understand what God was saying. His people, the people of Judah, had chosen something else besides God and therefore were guilty of two errors. It's almost as if they got two for the price of one. Two sins for the price of only one. One, they had ignored God, rejected Him, but then they'd put something else in God's place. May I suggest we do exactly the same thing today. Two for the price of one. 
any time that we miss the services on any kind of purpose, we commit two evils, at least two. We have failed in regard again to our own personal edification, but we've failed to edify everybody else. And of course, we have failed in our service to magnify the name of God. Is it any wonder in light of all of that that our friendship perhaps challenges us with those last points on this same slide? Onesiphorus and Paul, I have simply stated it like this. Those two seemingly were motivated by the marvelous friendship they had with the greatest friend of all. Jesus is our best friend. He is the one described as that friend that sticketh closer than a brother in Proverbs 18. He is the one who, of course, gave His life for you and me, taking our place. And He is the one that wishes for us to follow Him to the place of everlasting glory. Isn't it interesting that in His friendship, He has already trodden all the way that you and I need to go. And He simply asks, follow me. I have blazed the trail for you. I have shown you all the pitfalls and all the dangers. If you will but follow and step on the stones that I have set forth, all shall be well. When you and I step off the stones He has laid, and we go off on a tangent path, our friendship to Him then can be called into question. Didn't Jesus say in John 14 verse 21 that if we are friends to Him, we will do what He says? How good is your friendship with Jesus tonight? It looks like Paul and Onesiphorus were both not only friends to one another, but great friends to Jesus. What about me and you? Is our friendship as deeply rooted and strong as it ought to be? Or is our friendship a fair, fair, a fair weather when it best? I'm friends when it's convenient. I'm friends when all is well and fine. But when times get hard or difficult, my friendship also seems to go the same way. Is it any wonder then that as we close this lesson this evening, Onesiphorus challenges us to be that special friend like he was. And may you and I, of course, be the same. The concluding words to this lesson are certainly these, and they will not at all be surprising. Because in this friendship we find value, we find strength, and we find the basis of the Word of God. May you and I look upon our friends that are in that same category as extra special friends. Wasn't it Paul who in Galatians 6 could there say in verses 9 and 10 about the special nature, doing good unto all men, but especially, he said, unto those who are of the household of faith. And I'm looking at the Pippin household of faith tonight. And we're blessed to have this household that God has provided. This kind of attitude prompts us to ask of ourselves, you can't be a friend of the Master's if you haven't obeyed His gospel, if you haven't in fact said in your life that which He has deemed to be necessary. Believe, He said in John 8 verse 24. He would say in Mark 16, 16, that except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, and he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you haven't publicly made an acknowledgement of that belief, tonight would be the perfect night. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God and repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you have begun that walk with Him, but your friendship with Him has waned, maybe even to the point of near non-existence over the years, come back tonight to your first love. He has not given up on you. 
In fact, he still stands at the door and knocks. The very words of Revelation 3 verse 20. But he did state, if you will open the door, I will come in and sup with you and you with me. He begs you to come. He pleads with you to come. He implores you to come. And tonight we'd be happy to pray on your behalf if that would be the need of your life. If we could be of assistance to you, may we allow Onesiphorus challenge and prompt us to be the better friend of the Lord and also better friends to one another. It is in that sense that we extend this invitation at this time. And if we could be of help to you, won't you let us know while together we stand and while we sing.